Improving your leadership skills will help you in every area of your life, but it's tough to know where to get started. And that's why we created the Achievement Index Assessment. You can take the assessment at theachievementindex.com. It takes about five minutes and it's going to generate a personalized report that breaks down how you prioritize, leverage, and execute. Go to theachievementindex.com or find the link in the show notes. You want to move quickly, but you have to be realistic because when you're working in an area like the Amazon, where people have lived basically just trying to survive, trying to keep people from grabbing their lands, burning their forests down or stealing their crops, that's a long-term proposition. But at the same time, you have to be willing to take that path with those entrepreneurs. And it's just the combination of supporting, accompanying, believing, trusting, and then, of course, making the investment. Welcome to the Achievement Index, a podcast designed to help you understand and accelerate the ways you perform. I'm Dr. Apollo Omeka. I created the Achievement Index based on my experience in the FBI, U.S. Army Special Forces, and business. According to the Achievement Index, vibrant success is the result of doing well in three areas, or as we like to call them, orientations. Prioritize, leverage, and execute. On this podcast, I'll be getting inside the minds of noteworthy leaders to explore how their unique orientations inform the successes and challenges they've navigated throughout their lives and careers. On the show today, I'll be speaking with Nicole Etchart, co-founder and CEO of Nest, a catalyst for social enterprises in global emerging markets. Nest provides financial capital, training, and mentoring, and access to markets for a high-impact portfolio of social enterprises that solve critical social problems within marginalized communities across Central and Eastern Europe and Latin America. Since its founding in 1997, Nest has invested over $24 million, trained and supported over 24,000 entrepreneurs, and accelerated and financed 223 enterprises, sustaining more than 89,000 formal jobs, and improving the lives of over 1 million people. That's a lot of stuff you've done, Nicole. How are you doing today? Fine. Thank you, Apollo. How are you? (laughs) I am amazing. I'm so excited to have you here. So many of the entrepreneurs, business owners, fund managers that I interact with and that have been on the podcast, they're in young funds and are kind of on this wave of rising impact investors and conversations around impact investing. And 1997, I think the conversations were a lot different, right? So (laughs) I'm, I'm excited to get into this. So first of all, let's just break down what your, your score on the Achievement Index. You were 56% prioritize, 40% leverage, and 4% execute. So, you know, we know that the, the prioritize orientation is all about thinking big, choosing which mountain you're going to climb and planting the flag on that mountain and being aware of the, the threats and opportunities in that environment. That was your primary orientation at 56%. And then leveraging is all about making that work easy, making climbing the mountain easy. So building out your your base camp at the mountain with the technology, the information, the people and the systems that are going to make that climb easy. And then execution is all about charting that path up the mountain and then actually walking that path. So what's your initial reaction to these scores that you got? 
And it was really interesting. Um, I think on the one hand, they resonated with me in terms of what I believe, uh, you know, how I approach Nest and, and decisions overall. I have to say that the execution part was a surprise uh, in the sense that I do want to make sure that whatever we say, we do, you know, so we mm. walk the talk. And I'm a very detail-oriented person, and I really believe mm-hmm. in quality, you know. On the other hand, I do think that the leverage piece that sort of made up for it because I do try to guide my team and my colleagues as much as possible. Uh, and that's something that I really believe strongly in. So yes, delegate, but not, you know, abandon. <laughs> uh, it's delegate, but be a, a mentor, be with them, challenge them, um, always help them to grow and, and be better at implementing. So I do think that maybe I get off the hook on execution because I work a lot on trying to help the team and, um, you know, do their work better and work with the entrepreneurs and so forth. So we wouldn't be able to do what we do today if I didn't have these wonderful people on the ground, committed and passionate and, you know, working to to grow our companies. Um, and so my job is to make sure they're getting uh, the support, the tools, the alignment, the encouragement, uh, and also the hard questions and the challenges, right, for them to do it even better. So, yeah, no, I thought it was it was very interesting. I love that. The thing about the way the assessment works is it it gives you these different scenarios or options for things that you could be doing, and it forces you to choose the one that you'd be most likely to do, right? So the one execute uh, that you chose was, um, it says you would rather be actively working on a problem rather than reading or researching it. So that's an execute uh, response. And um, compared to, it says at times you might feel like research um, is a waste of time. Um, so these are strongly worded for a reason. Uh, we want people to be forced to choose because we believe that uh, to be successful at anything, all three of those ingredients have to be there. You have to be able to prioritize, meaning know what, what must be done. You have to leverage, meaning like, okay, how do we make this stuff easy? And then you have to actually do it, which is the execute piece. So no one person can be all of those things all the time. But it's really about understanding, okay, well, your kind of natural tendency, where do you where do you lie? And, and I love how you're like, wow, I'm really surprised by that execute. Like that, that's so low because I feel like we execute a lot. And that's something that somebody with a high prioritizer, high leverage, uh, orientation would say they would speak in terms of we, the people who are super high execute speak often in terms of I, you know, in terms of what I can do. How do you think that may have shifted over the years? Cause I imagine you haven't always had a team, right? Like how did it, how did it play out? Take me back to 1997 or maybe even, you know, pre-97 of, of how you got into this work and how did, you know, how did that prioritize leverage execute show up uh, back in the 90s? Oh, yeah, that was a different time. Um, I think, well, first of all, yes, uh, the thought, the idea, the genesis for, for Nest started in my uh, prior work. Um, you know, I was working with um, different um, nonprofit organizations, seeing how civil society organizations were often trying to do good, but they were not very sustainable and they were very grant dependent and they were not very entrepreneurial. So that's where the idea for Nest came. How can we help these um, organizations become more entrepreneurial and solve critical social problems in an entrepreneurial way? Um, and then we discovered that was very powerful because in trying to become more sustainable as, as organizations and as companies, they actually were generating um, a lot of impact. 
But yes, at the very beginning, I mean, I literally, we, you know, we are the classic story of drawing our whole concept on a napkin, you know, kind of thing of what we wanted to do that was, uh, you know, focused on supporting social enterprises and then, you know, researching that also and then changing the ecosystems that surround them. And literally at the beginning, it was, I was, I'm a co-founder, so I co-founded this with who is now a very good friend of mine, Lee Davis. And it was really a basement story. It was in my home in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I'm originally from Chile, but I, I grew up in the States and I was living in Baltimore at the time. And, um, you know, in the evenings after working full time um, in another position, I would go down to work uh, on Nest. Um, in wow. the, and my husband teases me that I took over his basement office because I <laughs> started working there. <laughs> and we started very much, I'll never forget, the first support that we received from a foundation came in through a fax machine. So, of course, I'm being very honest. In those days, you got letters <laughs> from donors in a, in a fax machine. And, and yeah, and the terms were different. But you know what, Apollo? They, they weren't that different. They, they, the words were different, but the meaning behind them were not. So we were talking a lot about that we needed to provide capacity building and capital. I mean, and it's still the same today. We're an impact-first investor. We're providing a lot of business services, mentoring, and different kinds of capital. We used to talk about mixed funding, mixed financing, which is what we talk about today about uh, blended finance. We were talking mm, a lot mm -hmm. about business plan competitions. Well, we did many, many business plan competitions around the world. And today people call them acceleration programs or incubation mm -hmm. programs. Um, and we were talking about a loan fund. I mean, it was called the Social Enterprise Loan Fund, SELF. And this was, you know, today what people would call our, our impact funds, right? And our, in, in our case, Lirio Fund and um, Violet Fund, which are our two impact funds. So I think these ideas were there, um, the needs were there, and we were a bit, I guess you could say a pioneer because, you know, there weren't that many others that were uh, working in that area. There were a few of us, and we were trying to make a change and create a sector and create an industry. So definitely it was important for us to share what we were doing. And um, in fact, the first part program, we called it the Nest Venture Fund. And we were supporting and investing in mm. social enterprises and we were providing um, different forms of capital and so forth. And it wasn't a fund per se, it's structured like a fund, but it was certainly acting like a fund. But execution was bigger back then. I remember sitting as we were looking for partners and supporters, you know, with a long list of, of, of potential, you know, and going through them with our, you know, pens, scratching out the ones we didn't think we could go after. And everything was very much hands-on. Yeah. And then little by little, just, you know, bringing on a first few people to join our team. And uh, I actually moved to Santiago, Chile in 1999 with my family um, to start growing nest from there. And from Chile, we, we then went into Peru, we went to um, Ecuador, Argentina, Brazil, and eventually into Colombia. So little by little, we replicated the model. And in Europe, we were doing the same thing. We started in Hungary, and then we went to um, Slovakia, Czech Republic, uh, wow. uh, Romania, Croatia, and, and, and later on into Poland. How fast did you go international? I think we were in about 10 countries by 2007, so 10 years. And, and what did your team look like at that point? We had small teams. I would say maybe, you know, core teams in Chile and in Hungary. And, you know, there were three or four people. And then we had like 
smaller teams in each of the countries working locally. And so, yeah, we were sm- much smaller. Um, did a lot of traveling. Everything was done in person and supported the teams. And then also, of course, it was a lot of coming to New York and coming to London and, and you know, coming to you know, different parts of the Bay Area and so forth to meet with donors and investors and try yeah. to get them on board. You know, a lot of very hard work to just um, get people. I, I think people were interested. It was just very new. And so we had to yeah. educate a lot and explain a lot what we were trying to do. Nicole went international in 2007. I mean, do you remember how much harder it was to do almost anything in 2007? We were all on flip phones and Blackberries. The iPhone didn't come out until 2007. If you said you were going to a meeting, people just automatically assumed that you were meeting face to face. And you had to buy a muffin and a coffee just to use the Wi-Fi in a cafe for 30 minutes. That's if they had Wi-Fi. For Nicole, leverage wasn't a video conference, it was an airplane. She had to get on the plane numerous times, fly to numerous countries to educate people on this model. If you have to educate folks before you can raise money or sell them on the product, it's incredibly time intensive. It reminds me so much of the work that Jen McLeay is doing, which you can hear about on episode two of this podcast. But Nicole was out there in 2007, all over the world, making things happen. But why did she have to educate people so much? Because she was operating in this space between for-profit and non-profit. And that's a really tough place to be. You run the risk of being labeled an extreme capitalist by foundations, donors, and charitable organizations if you're looking at spinning up businesses. And you run the risk of looking like a charity if you're talking to investors about social impact. So I had to ask her, how she navigated that space. How was she able to educate the many stakeholders and be successful in so many countries? I mean, I have an article hanging on my wall that says it's called The Best of Both Worlds um, because basically that's what we were trying to do, right? We were trying to bring the best of the charity world or, you know, philanthropic world, I guess you could say, and also the best of the private sector world and and combine them to build a hybrid model. And I have to say that... In the first 10 years, a lot of the conversations were exactly what you just said. It was a lot about identifying what we were trying to do and why it was different and why it was important to have this different mindset as to how you do good so that you can still do good, you can still have impact, but you don't always have to do it with a charity model. And a lot of our trainings, even at the beginning, I have to say, the beginning 10 years of Nest, we, we worked with a lot of nonprofit organizations helping them to start businesses. And one of the things they were concerned about was, oh, if I start a business, am I going to lose my mission? Am I going to shift away from my mission? Mm. And we had, we had a whole methodology showing them that you don't have to do that. You don't have to move away from the impact that you're having and the mission that you're having. Uh, because you're starting a business, the two things can align. And then the same thing, the conversations with the donors and the investors were a lot about that. You know, I remember an early conversation with a, with a foundation that when I told them that we wanted to work with an organization in Chile that was, they were providing support to um, victims of domestic violence. And this program officer told me, oh, you know, if you help them start a business, they're going to leave their mission. They're not going to do their mission anymore because mm-hmm. they're going to become a pure business. And we started working with this organization and we helped them build 
a model that worked for them, which was a sort of, um, you know, different fee scale for different um, levels of people with in- different levels of income that were all victims of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And it became mm-hmm. sustainable and they were able to grow and they were able to continue doing the good work that they did, but in a very sustainable way. And I have to admit, you know, at the early on, foundations were not always keen on doing that. They were like, oh, you're pushing these organizations to the other side, right? And we were demonstrating that that's not the case. And now that example will always stay with me because, you know, of course, it took a while because this was a group of women, all of them therapists. They weren't used to running a business. And so we were giving them the tools and training them. Now, today, you know, 10 years fast forward, now started working with for-profit companies as well, not only a non-profit. And so, you know, we all, our portfolio is probably three quarters for-profit and one quarter non-profit, but they're all mission-driven organizations. Mm-hmm. So we don't worry so much about their legal makeup. We're just worried about the vision that the entrepreneur has and if they want to really have impact. And that's what we've become very good at. But I have to say that now in the world today, 2023, those conversations don't happen as often. More people are on board. They understand that uh, you can do good and be entrepreneurial and, and sustainable. I think the conversation that still unfortunately happens is actually that the players in the ecosystem are not always set up to do this kind of investing in uh, social entrepreneurship because it takes a while, especially the work that Ness is doing, We work with early stage companies that take a while in order to really grow. And we need to be able to give them the patient capital and the softer capital. And, you know, our return to our investors might not be as great as investors might would hope for. So this is this is the missing middle. I I don't know if you've heard of that term, but it's the missing middle. And it's hard to do what we do. So I think that even though the mindset has shifted, the structures haven't always shifted, not only from the private sector side, but also from the public sector side, which is important because the public sector can be an important vehicle for de-risking private capital, right? And that's what we need. So we need to be having the conversation with both. So that unfortunately hasn't changed as much, but it's slowly but surely. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's so wild. I mean, I can see your your prioritizer orientation coming out because uh, you know I imagine the way I think about prioritizers is we're kind of standing at the base of a mountain range and we're looking. Oh man, you know the clouds over there that that looks like bad weather over there, and it's like, ooh, this looks really sunny, and it looks like maybe there's a path that's already been taken. You know, maybe we can take that path. And it sounds like you are kind of passionately drawn to looking at those environmental forces and all of the conditions. And I love that you brought up the stakeholder piece and the ecosystem. Because I, I see that as a really crucial piece. I'm wondering if you could maybe almost get a little technical here with us and talk about the kind of key st- stakeholders that have been really important, even as non-participators potentially in your work. Like, What are the key stakeholders in the ecosystem that you feel like are influential and in what ways? I think along the way, it was early on probably a group of very forward-thinking foundations that, you know, they have the problem to solve is how do we make these grantees less dependent on us? We can't continue to just support them forever. That's a huge responsibility, but we want them to continue to do their good work. So early on, those foundations were very intrigued by NES because they saw it from their perspective. It's going to help some right. of our grantees become more sustainable and use entrepreneurial 
you know, solutions. Um, and so they, they kind of went out on a limb, you know, and sort of and started uh, supporting us. And then the next group of stakeholders has been the corporate sector. And the corporate sector, I think the reason they are drawn to, to Ness is they like the entrepreneurial approach, of course. They, they are their companies themselves. So they come with that mindset already of, you know, selling products and services and making money and reinvesting it to grow the company. Right. So they kind of like that Nest is giving those tools to small and medium-sized enterprises and also doing good at the same time. And they're able to engage their co-workers, the people that work in those companies, in their corporations, to help us as mentors and as, as, as advisors. So they love that that whole package. So more and more corporations have come on board and supporting us for, you know, for a, for a long time, I would say, for, you know, the second say, sort of the stage. It's critical. And then I think there are organizations that are sort of ecosystem builders that they mm-hmm. were not really present 25 years ago, but they are today. And they're specifically here to help organizations like Nest, like the, the impact investors and the accelerators to help them to become more sustainable and grow themselves. So, you know, we we have those networks that we can now turn to for that kind of support as well. I, and the funny thing is that in, in a sense, Nest and other early pioneer organizations helped create those networks because we said, we're trying to do it all, right? We're doing the work of investing and supporting entrepreneurs, but we're also uh, doing the, the the events. We're also, you know, writing the public, you know, the articles, the and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So then these yeah. other networks have now taken up some of that ecosystem building, you know, and so now we can contribute to it, but we don't have to do everything. If you look at Ness's early years, we were doing forums, we were writing books, we did over 100 case studies, mm. we were doing the what was called awareness raising at that time. And today we still do it, of course, but we're able to do it with the help of these, you know, facilitating enablers, ecosystem enablers, if you want to call them, that are now spreading the good word and the, the lessons and, and they are investing in that. So I think that, and of course, from a per- more personal perspective, if I can just say, since we were often on, on you know, uncharted waters and we were trying mm-hmm. to do things that people were not always ready to hear or did not know about, I think having strong, uh, for me anyway, was having good mentors for myself, but also very strong colleagues. Like I used a co-CEO model. So I had a co-CEO that was working with me so that we could, you know, wake up in the morning and know that someone else is also thinking about this, right? Uh, Not just myself. Or for example, um, the team, like I was saying to you earlier, the, the, the people that I work with, that all of a sudden you hear them and they're like, they own Nest now, you know, they're bringing, mm. they're now replicating the model and they're bringing it forth. So they're also, on, you know, the new leaders that are doing this good work. Did you catch that? Nicole used a co-CEO model because she wanted to know that there was somebody else worrying about the same things that she was worrying about. You might say, well, why not just hire somebody? But you can hear that in the early stages, there was so much to figure out. There was so much that was brand new. So if you've taken the Achievement Index, you know that we use the analogy of climbing a mountain. And the way I think about it is that Nicole was kind of sitting at the base of this mountain range, looking up and saying, wow, we've got a lot of really big mountains to climb and don't know exactly how we're going to get there. And so I don't want to be sitting at the base of this mountain range alone thinking about which mountains we should tackle. So that's how she chose to help leverage people around her. 
That co-CEO model helped her prioritize in ways that would set her up for success and the challenges that would come. And, you know, of course, what I think is very important is the investment community for us has been maybe the most challenging, if I can say, not straight, you know, uh-huh. foundations or corporate foundations, but I mean investors, because there are pioneer investors that said, oh, wow, what you do is important. You're doing what, you know, you're really doing impact investing. You're working with indigenous people, people with disabilities, mm-hmm. you know, people coming out of incarceration, the homeless. This is impact first. So mm-hmm. we're going to give you the seed funding for your funds. But a lot of other investors said, okay, we're going to wait and see until you have a track record in investing yeah. uh, not beyond the acceleration programs, right? And then we'll come on board. So, you know, they're a little bit slower. They're a little bit more hesitant. Um, they want to make sure that they see traction. And I think some of the big, big funders, the development finance community, were still struggling to see how they can become more active in this area because their funding tends to be very, comes from government, right? And comes from it's larger amounts and it's very hard for them to manage these higher amounts of money in smaller funds and in, you know, more, if I can say, more riskier investments to say it in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. something we're working together right now, as a matter of fact, put together a set of recommendations for the funding community on how they can better invest in the bioeconomy and the Amazon. So how can they bring their funding and the kinds of funding that they do to intermediaries like Nest, impact first investors like Nest, so that we can continue to grow the impact. So that's what I was saying earlier, that the structures are not always set up perfectly for our space. And so we have to do the educating and bringing little by little more players on board. But it's it's happening. And as more enter and more come on board, that's a demonstration effect that then others will follow. The issue of track record is so huge, again, when you think about underinvested people and communities. How do you all approach track record when you're thinking about deploying capital and resources to the entity that you're investing in? You know, we do a pretty rigorous due diligence in terms of looking at these companies, both in our acceleration program as well as our funds. And we take the time to really get to know the entrepreneurial team, the investors, if there are any, the, you know, the governance structure, everything about the model and the growth opportunity, right? So we really want to define that growth opportunity. And yes, companies are young or some of them are not as young, but they haven't done, you know, they haven't always had the, the tools, they haven't always created the right financial management systems in place and so forth. So part of our due diligence is actually helping them to create those structures. So for example, we will work with a company at due diligence to make sure they have they get their financials in order and that they can present us with a financial model and projections that make sense. So we will invest in helping them do that because we believe in what they're trying to do and we know that they're very sincere and they want to do right, but they haven't been able to do that part. And we will make conditions, for example, we will say, you need to get a financial manager in your team if you want to take an investment from Nest, because it behooves you, you will do, you know, to be able to, to manage your funding, your financials very well. So we'll make those kinds of kind of conditions 
but at the same time, you know, realistic conditions, not not right. those that are not attainable. Um, and so we do spend quite a bit of time also on the impact measurement part. For example, we will teach the entrepreneurs, we will give them our, our management tools, our measurement tools, and teach them how to go about, ma- you know, measuring their impact but in terms of jobs created, in terms of people with support that, you know, psychological support or other types of wraparound uh, support. Uh, quality of jobs means also paying well, uh, having contracts, you know, and also the environmental side. We also are tracking environmental impact. So we don't mm. expect the entrepreneurs to all have that already in place. We're willing to help them create that in terms of being able to show their track record, both, you know, financially and, and also socially and environmentally. But there has to be some, there have to be some signs of, of a clear commitment to growing and having impact and having good practices and, you know, eventually building that track record that will make them, for example, maybe able to access commercial credit if possible. But we know it's not a short-term proposition. That's the other thing, you know, sometimes I get a little frustrated with, you know, it's both. You want to move quickly, but you have to be realistic because when you're working in an area like the Amazon where, People have lived, you know, basically just trying to survive, trying to keep people from grabbing their lands, trying to keep people from not, you know, burning their forests down or, you know, stealing their crops. Wow. You have to be realistic as to what you can expect, right? In remote areas where it's expensive to get to, you have to deal with transportation, logistics, high gas prices. Nicole is obviously a really strong prioritizer. And one of the really hard things about being a prioritizer, it's, it's hard to see the impact of your ideas and your efforts. So a lot of executors have the benefit of being able to look up at the end of the day and saying, hey, I checked 10 things off my list and I can see the results of that. Prioritizers can't do that. And so as she's talking about how to support economies and make impacts in the rainforest, You've got to be patient with that. You've got to have strong vision. And if you're an executor, your success might be able to be measured on an hourly or daily or weekly basis. If you're a leverager, it's probably going to be weekly or monthly. And if you're a prioritizer, it's probably going to be years or sometimes even decades. That's one of the amazing things about thinking in that prioritized space so much and one of the most challenging things because you have to be able to look at the day-to-day and feel like you're making almost no progress but still be able to keep going. And Nicole has clearly done that. So there are all these variables. So you have to learn how to navigate them, work with them, and then sort of start seeing where the successful, you know, leverage points are so that you can start to help make a difference. That's a long-term proposition, but at the same time, There are some signs, you know, where companies are making the progress and their products are adding value and they are able to pay the producers better uh, prices and they are getting certified. So it's a path. You have to be willing to take that path with those entrepreneurs and so that they can then become viable in the market. And it, it happens. And it's just the combination of supporting, accompanying, believing, trusting, and then, of course, making the investments. I love it. 
I'm also a super high prioritized person. I'm much more extreme than you are. I'm like 92% (laughs) prioritize (laughs) and yeah, 4% leverage, 4% execute. And similarly, it's not like I can't execute or leverage, but like I could stay here in these prioritized conversations with you all day about global forces and stakeholders and all of that. I mean, (laughs) you know, this is the stuff that lights me up that gets me out of bed in the morning. But what's your favorite part of your work? You, You personally, what's your favorite part of the work that you do? I think where I get my energy and happiness, most of all, just it's a hard question. So I'm going to try to bundle it into one answer, but it's a combination of, I do like problem solving and, you know, finding innovations and solutions to make sure that we, we're able to continue making this impact. Cause that's, I really, that's my passion, right? Having the impact and seeing the impact. But I think the energy comes from working with the team and with the entrepreneurs. So at the end mm. of the day, it's a mixture. You know, it is the innovation and problem solving, but it's because there's a team and there's entre- a group of entrepreneurs who are every day waking, you know, they're the resilient ones. They're the ones that during COVID kept their companies going to try to figure out how they could continue, you know, employing their their people and paying them good wages so they wouldn't fall into poverty. And they have that conviction. And so that energy that they have and that commitment that they have, it spreads and it makes you, you know, it, it gives you a lot of energy and hope. So in that one question, that 4% question that I got, the, uh, the execution question about, would you rather be yeah. researching or would you rather be doing? I would rather be doing because I get frustrated, you know, only by knowing all the problems there are in the world, right? And sitting around talking about them. I really have no patience for that. I just have, I know that they're there. I see them every day, but we need to, you know, we need to move forward and and, and solve them. So that's what I think I love the most is like the co-creating, co-problem solving, working with people that see the glass half full and are trying to make a difference and make changes because if not, you could easily fall into a, a situation of just spinning your wheels and being very frustrated by what's going on, right? So I try not to do that. And I try to tell my friends, come on, guys, I know these problems exist. Let's get going. Let's, you know, let's not just sit around, get pa- paralyzed by them. So, so yeah, I think that's, that's what it is. And I'm, I'm looking forward, as, uh, you know, to growing Nest, growing the funds, growing the work that we're doing, maybe even in the future, entering new geographies. So, there's lots to do still. I love it. And now you have smartphones and Wi-Fi everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Almost everywhere, but yes, everywhere. Almost, almost yeah. everywhere. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. This, is, uh, this has been amazing. And I, I just love the work that you're doing. And you're truly a, a pioneer in this space. So thanks for the work that you're doing. And thanks for the awesome conversation. Well, thank you, Apollo. Thanks for the great questions. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, Nicole, for that amazing conversation. Now, as usual and as always, we're going to break down some of the main things that I took away from this using that prioritize, leverage, execute structure. So when it comes to prioritizing, Nicole says that it is really important to understand all of the stakeholders that you're dealing with, understand who they are, and more importantly, understand what is it that they want? What is it that they are looking to gain and what threats are they looking to avoid? The next big point that I took away is that sometimes when you are in uncharted waters, 
If you're in the prioritization abyss where you've never been there before and maybe no one's ever been there before, it's really important to surround yourself with people who do have that experience. So when you are venturing off into uncharted waters, get mentors or even a co-CEO like Nicole did. From a leverage perspective, she was really quick to do what a friend of mine likes to call speaking French. She says, we, we, we. Whenever she talked about her accomplishments, it was always we and not I. And it's really clear that she's built that dependence on a team that she's been able to empower. She says that it's really important to get people to the point where they own it. Not only do they feel like they're a part of the process, like they're a part of generating those outcomes, but they own their part in that process. Going back to the stakeholder piece, Nicole says that it's important to leverage information to educate the many stakeholders that are out there. So maybe they're investors, maybe they are public officials, maybe they're companies that you're looking to invest in. But part of her strength and how she and her team have been able to grow is by leveraging information to educate necessary stakeholders. And finally, with regards to execute, we heard Mohammed Yassin and Brian Hollins talk a little bit about this in their interviews as well. But she talked about the need to be able to pass things off once they get to a certain point. So when she started back in the late 90s, she was in that basement, you know, cranking things out herself. And that's really necessary for founders and young companies to do is to really get in there and muscle through some things. But there's this point where that muscling through needs to be passed off to somebody else who's going to be able to really care for it, to build systems around it and make it easy. So really for an executive, that execution piece is in ensuring that the strategy is executed and less so, you know, filling out an individual form or, you know, having a to-do list of 20 things a day. So thank you once again, Nicole. And as always, thank you all for listening and we will see you next time. Remember, you can find out what your achievement index is by going to www.theachievementindex.com dot com. Take the assessment. Takes about 15, 20 minutes. Make sure you're in a nice, calm state of mind in a quiet place. And you can find out your own achievement index and figure out how you match up against our guests. I'm Dr. Apollo Omeka. If you like the podcast, please rate us on whatever platform you're listening and remember to share it with your friends. Thanks. See you next time.